Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is going to be so great, you might want to share it, or you might want to listen again. We're going to talk about bees and the importance of bees, and one of the things it makes is going to make this such a great segment is our guest is excellent. Nick Dorian, PhD student, the Department of Biology over at Tufts, which is very close to here. Thanks for coming in. Oh, it's my pleasure. I had an interesting conversation with you just a moment ago about how you got into bees. That's a good place to start. Pretty interesting. You, you like gardening a lot, and it was a natural progression. Yeah, I grew up around the garden. I uh, loved growing foods and uh, fruits and vegetables to eat. Um, and it wasn't until college that I really started thinking about where those those foods came from, and that they weren't just magically appearing on the plant. An insect had to help them along the way, and those insects are bees. And you mentioned to me something I didn't realize and I find sort of strange is that a lot of people have are averse to bees. They don't like bees. Yeah, the stinger is sort of the bee's downfall. Uh, it's not a great marketing technique if you want to be a popular but insect. But it's, it's no big deal. Yeah, I mean, in, in most cases, there's lots of different kinds of bees, and they're pretty averse to stinging. So the honeybee... Um, like, you know, it stings a, a lot of people. Um, but um, in general, the insects that people get stung by are not bees, but the similar looking wasps. I, we have bees out back in my house. And I go out to walk the dogs and they're in the bushes. They don't even bother bother me. Yeah, bees are pretty docile as, as far as they only insects sting go. you if you are stepping on them or ruining their their home. Right. Yeah. If you provoke bees, uh, they're going to try to defend it. Um, so but other than that, they'll leave you alone. They can actually sense whether you're threatening in your behavior or not? I guess they can, right? Yeah, if you start flailing around, they're going to be sort of threatened. But uh, if you sort of go up them and are nervous, they're not going to pick up All right, on so that. just be cool. Yeah, exactly. Now, the obvious question is, why are bees so important? So bees are important for, for many reasons. Um, I guess from the plant's perspective, plants are, um, you know, plants are stationary. They can't move, and they need some way to reproduce. And bees, uh, for 90% uh, of flowering plants, bees are some of the most important ways that plants have of getting their um, their fruits to be formed. And, and a bigger picture answer is kind of, a lot of our food will go away if there are not bees. Exactly, because a lot of the food we eat are fruits, um, and without bees, those fruits would cease to exist, stuff like blueberries, um, watermelons, uh, even coffee. How about vegetables? Uh, well, veg uh, botanical vegetables, not so much, but things we think of like avocados um, that are um, really botanical fruits, but um, we think of as vegetables like zucchinis too. Um, those would go away as well. So how does the pollination process work? Uh, you can be very detailed. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, plants produce uh, uh, pollen, which are the, the male uh, the cells that need to find the ovary, which is the female cells. And in order for that to happen, uh, there needs to be some way that plants can transfer those cells between plants. Since plants can't walk around, plants are stationary. Can't move, they can't move. They, they depend on a third party. Exactly. Some plants use the wind, which is why we have allergies in spring and fall. Other, most other plants that have flower will use it in insect. So uh, bees are some of the most popular pollinators because they're so fuzzy. And so when a bee visits a flower, it's not trying to help the plant reproduce. It's just trying to get a meal of nectar or maybe some pollen. And incidentally, it'll pick up some pollen grains on its body. It's, the bee is very hairy, 
and pollen is very small, and static electricity sort of works to the plant's favor. So the bee incidentally picks up some pollen, and the next flower it visits, some of that pollen gets dropped off. And if it's a plant of the same species, well, then uh, pollination can happen and the plant becomes fertilized. Are there female flowers and male flowers? Uh, in some plants, there are male and female flowers, and those are the ones that really require— And some uh, are both. Uh, some are hermaphrodites. Some contain both male and female uh, uh, kind of cells in the same plant. You're involved with a, a program, Tufts Pollinator Init Initiative. Tell me about that. Yeah, earlier this year, uh, or yeah, earlier this year, uh, uh, some graduate students and faculty at Tufts uh, and I decided to, to start the Tufts Pollinator Initiative to basically raise awareness about uh, the importance of bees and other pollinators uh, in urban areas, as well as try to protect some, some pollinators. And so we've been planning a series of gardens um, to create sort of like a stepping stone network of, of flowers. So if a bee is trying to find a meal, any given time, it needs, it needs a meal every about 45 minutes if it's really flying fast. And so we're basically trying to reduce the time a bee has to fly before it finds a meal. Imagine uh, a city where there's a, uh, you're putting new shop um, supermarkets and you need to find, uh, you don't want to drive very far. It's the same idea for a bee. We're basically putting more supermarkets so, so they can get food. So there are food deserts for bees and you're trying to fix that. Exactly. How can people who like to garden maximize their gardens using bees? Uh, so uh, there's, a, there's a few schools of thought. If you want to support bees via gardening, you can plant native flowers, things that bloom throughout the year like bee balm or goldenrod or sunflowers, which are really pretty. And these plants will come up year after year and support bees once you plant them. I'm talking about not using bee, uh, garden to support bees, but bees to support your garden. Right. So by planting flowers that support bees throughout the year, you'll attract bees and you'll be able to grow bigger and better fruits. So without bees, um, sometimes squash plants won't produce uh, food. Blueberry plants need pollinators. So you don't need to keep a hive, right? You just plant flowers that would attract them? Exactly. And in, in the ideal scenario is that these wild bees that can't be managed will come and find your crops on their own. Is it the case that there are certain species of flowers that go, that will attract the bees that go with the species of thing you're trying to grow? Uh, in some cases, uh, it gets a little complicated, but a lot of bees are actually quite general in the, the food that they eat. So uh, they're not too picky about the, the foods, they, the flowers they like to visit. So it's, it's a really serious thing, that the amount of decline, correct, that we're seeing? Yeah, so insect declines are sort of pervasive throughout the news, insect apocalypse, insect Armageddon. Uh, the amount of evidence we have isn't necessarily the most convincing, but by and large, there's not as many insects as there used to be. And one of the best ways of addressing those declines is by providing habitats, such as flowers and gardens. By the way, before the break, you're... You're not only interested in bees, you're interested in all bugs. You used to be averse to bugs, and then you came to like bugs. Yeah. What was, are some, some of your other favorite bugs? Uh, so, oh, I really love fireflies, especially the kind of the magic they provide at night. Um, I'm also really into butterflies. They're really accessible, and you can learn all the different kinds of species relatively quickly. And it's amazing some of the migrations that monarch butterflies make down to Mexico. And I'm just baffled when I see a monarch that is born here, and it now flies thousands of miles to a, a forest in the middle of Mexico. That is kind of impossible to believe. Right. How long do they live? Uh, so some monarchs will live six weeks if they're born in the middle of summer. The monarchs that are born at the end of the year will live eight months. Uh, and they'll fly. How long does it take them to get from here to there? Uh, 2,000 miles. Because they, really, they don't go fast. They, they don't go very fast, but if they get up in the wind, they can sort of book it. Uh, okay. And so I, I don't have a, a, a strict answer for you, but I, I'd say at least a month. 
How do you know? Do you tag them? Can you tag a butterfly? Uh, the technology is improving now that we are going to be able to tag. Some sort tag. of nano tag? Exactly. And you can even you know, GPS track them or use uh, radio telemetry along the way to, to, to capture their frequency. If you put a tag on the monarch and then the monarch passes radio towers, you can pick up when it pings by. It must be tough to get a tag so light that it doesn't impede the flight. Uh, it's so far, and dragonflies, and some big dragonflies and monarchs are basically the only insects we've been able to use. In can you brand them or something? Uh, you can put tags on them, so you can put little stickers on them, and you can make, uh, you know, unique stickers. But those are passive, and so you'd have to recapture the butterfly. You'd have to go, yeah, um, which would, would be a hit or miss thing. Yeah. We're talking with Nick Dorian from Tufts, who is, what do you call yourself? I'm a biologist. I'm just a biologist. What What's a... A bee specialist called? A uh, melatologist. Oh, good. Yeah, there, so that's, I guess I could call myself a melatologist. Then. Good. <laughs> and we have a person here who wants to talk to you. We, her name is Gia, and she's in Burlington. Hello, Gia. Say hi to Nick. Hi, Bradley. Hello, Nick. Hello. As Bradley knows, I'm, my passion is saving biodiversity. Oh, wonderful. And I would love it if you would address, well, several things, but um, false human perfection, which is what lawns are. People, and, and people, they, don't, they want um, the flowers to have perfect leaves, so they don't want bugs and caterpillars to eat the leaves. The leaves then have holes and imperfections. All of these things that people think are imperfect are actually perfect. We are actually destroying the perfection of the ecosystems, and I would love it if you talk about that. Of course. And, one, and to add to that, I just read a thing about the fact or, or the notion. I don't know if it's a fact or not. I hope so. That it is an incorrect thing to do to rake your leaves. Just leave the leaves, leave the leaves alone. It's good for the birds. I am so yeah, glad. The other thing is people cut down trees because they don't want leaves on their lawn. I see it every day. I hate that stuff. I'm so Gia and I are on the same page with all this. So go ahead. Yes. Oh, no. I'm so Let's glad. Let's talk the, uh, to you. <laughs> I'm so glad the leave the leaves message is, is making it out there. It's one of the best ways of supporting insect populations is just not raking the leaves off your lawn or raking them into a pile and placing them on the border. Uh, there's so many insects that require leaf litter to overwinter, and by raking them up or even mowing them and placing them over your garden, it's not the same as leaving them intact. Um, but you're right, lawns are one of the largest irrigated crops in America. Humans have a, a real affection for making their lawn as green and weedless as possible, um, and I, I, I'm a strong advocate for uh, leaving some of the weeds, some of the dandelions and the clovers um, not only does it increase the health of the soil because you're, you know, some of these plants add nitrogen back into the ground, but these are providing food for insects all year long. And if you don't want to just let it go to a field, you could have plants in it that are beneficial to nature, correct? You don't, it, just not grass. Right. You could have a nice sculpted varietal type of garden. Exactly. So you, your lawn could have tall grasses types. and tall grasses. And if, if you don't want it to be more than three inches tall, then you can mow it, but mow it less often. One of the best ways that you can support insects throughout the year is just mowing your garden maybe half as often. A lot of insects have short life cycles, and so they're able to complete their life cycle in a relatively short period of time. And if you allow that period of time to exist between mowing events, well, that's one way you can support insects without it being a huge aesthetic burden. Well, Actually, I think lawns are fashion. Like they, we've been brainwashed to think lawns are a thing of beauty. 
Um, it, it's actually, I've said before to Bradley, and he probably doesn't remember, but it's sort of like imitating wall-to-wall carpeting in the house. That's what it reminds me of. It's like humans are trying to put our false idea of perfection onto nature. And by doing that, we're destroying, actually, we are actually destroying beauty, the beauty of nature, which is already perfect in many ways. So I really would like us to get away from uh, the lawn. But I, I do want to say that you have mentioned that um, it's not just bees. It's uh, butterflies, dragonflies, fireflies. When I was a kid, there were fireflies everywhere. I have not seen one in decades. Mm. So pesticides are killing all these things, lawns, cutting down all the trees. And I wanted to ask you real quick, because I know Bradley wants to get on with the interview. Um, do you have a Facebook page, and would you like to talk to high school kids? Because I would love to have you come into class and talk to high school kids. And you're nearby, right? Gia? Yeah. Burlington. Yeah. Burlington Mass. Yeah. So, yeah, we do have a Facebook page. If you if you follow uh, Tufts Pollinator Initiative on Facebook um, and okay. get in touch with us uh, in that way, um, we have we'd be more than happy to talk to, to high schoolers. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much, and thank you, Bradley. You're welcome. You don't have to leave so fast. I mean, there is no okay. I big hurry. Okay, I'll stay. If you have anything else to, to ask or add. No, I I, I think. Um, I'm all set. Okay, I just wanted to give you every opportunity because I know this is your jam, man. This I know this is my thing, and um, <laughs> yep. All right, thank but, you. Thanks, Bradley. Bye bye. Okay. All right, where were we? Uh, all right, just we'll go. There's no real order here. Be- different species have different floral preferences. Yeah. So I guess I will just lay the ground that there's lots of different kinds of bees. Most bees uh, don't live in hives. Most bees don't make honey. Most bees don't have a queen. Who it's- knew? Right? Well, you knew. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Most <laughs> bees don't live in a hive. Uh, no, they actually have a solitary life cycle. So one female um, decides to make a nest, and she'll make only five or, or six offspring in that nest. Um, and she might make one nest in her life or two. Um, and then she dies. So her whole existence as a bee lasts maybe five or six weeks. And it's quite different from the idea of a honeybee colony that's bustling with workers and there's hive mind. Uh, most bees uh, aren't like that. The one commonality they do have is that they feed their offspring pollen and nectar, and they love flowers. What's the purpose of honey? For honeybees, uh, the purpose of honey is to, to survive the winter. Only honeybees make honey. Uh, honeybee, only, the only bee in the United States that makes copious amounts of honey is the honeybee. Uh, there are some bees in the tropics, that uh, stingless bees, that make honey. What do the others eat during the winter? Um, so they're, they're not active. So the other They bees, don't need to eat? They hibernate? Yeah. There's no active colony or nest during the winter. So they're under the leaves. They're under the leaves or they're under the ground, exactly. Unless you rake them up and kill the, the poor things. In particular, bumblebee queens will often uh, dig a little uh, burrow f- to spend the winter in, and they're the only members of the bumblebee colony that survive the winter. And, so, and they like burrowing in compost piles or leaves. And so if you disturb them after they've already burrowed, well, that's an entire lineage of bumblebees lost. Do they have natural enemies other than man? Uh, bees. Bees. Yeah, Other so, animals. Um, uh, adult bees uh, will be picked off by birds sometimes, but they're pretty well armored, right? They have a stinger. The main p- uh, threat to bees is actually to the the developing bees, and it, there's a diversity of fungal pathogens and bacterial pathogens, as well as other insects that want to take advantage of the rich resources inside of a bee nest. All that sugary nectar and pollen. Some of the, the, the pa- parasites and the enemies of bees include flies, beetles, even other bees. There's a whole group of bees called cuckoo bees, and they don't build their own nests. They go into another bee's nest, just like a cuckoo bird, and they will lay eggs in that nest. 
You're so good at this. Is there you? You should have a. Do you go from school to school? I like don't. Travel, no, I, you I, really I, should. You I, should I, have a, an outreach program with your. You should get out there with your Tufts Pollinator Initiative. Yeah, seriously, we're trying to get the word out. So you are good, great. right, Gia? All right, honeybee colony collapse. We're not talking about only honeybees, but we'll talk about them some. What's what's that? It's a thing. Yeah. So in the the late. Uh, 2010s, a, a phenomenon emerged in which honeybee colonies uh, that were bustling one day by the end of the week were gone. The, the hive box was still there, but the worker force had been depleted by 95%. And you'd expect if 95% of a colony of bees, the colony of bees could be about 20,000 individuals. If 95% of those individuals died, you'd expect a big pile of bees in front of the nest. But there weren't. They were just disappeared. And so who, where did they go? Sort of like Jamestown. Right, they just up and up and went. Yep. And uh, it was the reason it was called colony collapse disorder because it was it was mysterious. Now, colony collapse disorder really isn't a problem affecting honeybee keepers. The main threats affecting honeybee keepers, however, are just consistent high levels of colony loss. So over the winter, forty percent of a beekeeper's colonies will die, and that's due to starvation. That's more than it used to be. That's it's more than it used to be. Why? Um, there's a mite called the varroa mite. And this mite transmits nasty diseases that make honeybees sick. And honeybee colonies can become infected during the year by picking them up on flowers, but also when honeybee keepers uh, keep colonies in high densities, that can uh, facilitate the transmission of the mite. And now the mite can infect a colony in the middle of the summer, and the colony will be fine because there's enough flowers and resources to keep it strong. But come winter, when there's no flowers oh, it gets left, weak. it gets weak. And that's why winter is the most vulnerable time. And so there's lots of research now is how can we make col honeybee colonies more resilient to uh, the varroa mite and the diseases that it carries. That's where you come in, right? Well, that's part of what I, I, I like thinking about. And one of the ways you can do that is by uh, increasing the diversity of resources on the landscape. So you can imagine that uh, if you are only eating one kind of flower or two kinds of flowers, that you have a very limited suite of nutrition. It's like if you only ate apples for a month or you only ate apples uh, for a week. You'd be kind of limited with lots of other nutri nutrients. Strangely, I have only eaten apples for the last week. I, I probably should, in light of this information, probably eat something else. Um, what about climate change and collapse? Does that does climate change make collapse more likely or less likely? Because yeah. uh, when it gets cold, the bees get weak. If it's if it's warmer, they don't. Right. So I think the the main thing about climate change and bees is. Well, first, the, the evidence isn't super clear on, on how climate change affects bees. But one way it could is by altering the times that flowers come out versus when bees come out. Oh. So bees have cues to, that are time with the environment. And flowers may or may not have those same cues. And so if there's a mismatch such that flowers bloom weeks before the bees come out, well, that could be a case where a bee is trying to make a home and, and forage for its offspring, but there's no flowers left. So the honeybee is sort of resilient against that because they have lots of bees and they're sort of active all year round. But imagine one of our solitary bees that's only active for four or five weeks a year. What is she going to do? Perfect timing. I'm going to break. We'll get a little news and a weather and continue with our excellent guest, Nick Dorian, and find out more about insects and bees and why they're important and what's happening. WBZ, Boston's News Radio. Now this. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Well, we're not, we're talking about bees, but it's so much more than that. It's just about the health of the earth and really the future ability for human life to be sustained. I mean, we're looking at, if things go the way they are, we could be looking at significant famine, right? More and more people and less and less food, partly due to a decline in the pollination due to bee loss. Hold on, I can't get my mic on. There we go, go ahead. Oh yeah, it's estimated that about one in every three bites of food is thanks to a bee. And so you can imagine your your dinner plate is going to become a whole lot less colorful. We're not going to lose the cereals or the grains, the things that rely on wind for pollination. So your your oats or your even your breakfast cereal or your breads. What we are going to lose is all the color because that's where the bees come in. That's also where a lot of nutrition is, correct? Exactly. Our plates will become a lot less nutritious. Um, you know, everything from, uh, you know, vitamin C uh, to, to vitamin A, these, these fruits and vegetables that we need, we're not going to be able to get from the cereal grains. How endangered? Well, there are new, a number of species that are endangered. So I guess we'll back up and say, how many, tell me about the species of, of bees, maybe what different species do and which ones are endangered. Yeah. So um, in terms of, I guess, so, Around the world, there's 20,000 different kinds of bees. Um, and we talk about the honeybee, that's just a single species of bee. In the US, there's about 4,000. In New England, there's about 350 kinds of bees. These bees do everything from specialize on one kind of plant. There's bees that only pollinate blueberries in spring. There's bees that only pollinate sunflowers in autumn. And then there are bees that are much more generalist. And some of the most um, conspicuous generalist bees we have around here are bumblebees. And bumblebees are sort of like honeybees in that they form a colony. But as I said earlier, those colonies don't last the winter, so they don't make a lot of honey. Now, bumblebees are sort of a mixed bag in terms of how they're faring, and they're actually one of the groups of bees we know the most about. Some bumblebees, like the common eastern bumblebee, is doing great. It's tripled in abundance over the last 30, 40 years. Other bees, other bumblebees, like uh, the rusty patch bumblebee, um, has basically uh, been extirpated from 90% of its range. It used to be the most abundant and uh, important cranberry pollinator on the East Coast, and now you can only find it in the Midwest. And so this is a strike, striking, striking example of how, when you think about bees, some bees are responding well to human-altered landscapes, and others are not. And in case of the rusty patch bumblebee, it's the first bee in the United States, um, the continental, that's been listed as endangered. So it's actually recognized as an endangered species, and protections are, are, are in place to, to learn a lot about uh, its biology. So beyond our food being becoming depleted, do other species' existence depend on the existence of bees? Um, well, it, it, I mean, plants depend on the existence of bees. There are many plants that rely heavily on bee pollination. Many bee species specialize on a single plant, and so they are, if they, without that plant species, those bees cease to exist. But fewer plants depend solely on a single species of bee. Um, other organisms that depend on bees to, to live are the parasites of bees. Lots of insects can only complete their life cycle in the nest of another bee. Now, these are not the cutest of insects. These are not the insects you, you grow up finding. But nonetheless, they are part of the native biodiversity of the region. What are cute insects? Cute insects? Well, I think bees are very cute. But cute. butterflies well, well, are okay. cute. Um, 
Uh, as I mentioned, oh yeah, fireflies, dragonflies. These are these are charismatic insects that sort of form, uh, I guess, form our perception of the natural world as children. You think of, to me, a summer night is not complete without cicadas. It's not complete without catching a firefly in my hand. Um, and yet, all of this is 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 very sort of uh, uh, tenuous. It's very fragile, and I. I kind of fear the day which I get up when I get up and the cicada chorus is is not as strong or my nights aren't illuminated by fireflies or I have to search and find bees um, in my garden. When I go to Plum Island, if I don't take binoculars, the birds look just like kind of great. They all look the same. When I take binoculars, all of a sudden a new world opens up and the cedar waxwing looks wildly different from some other bird, the bubblelink. And that's, that's, you know, a, a bird watcher is born. Similar thing can happen with insects. They're so small, you don't, they just kind of look like brown things. But when you get up close, they're spectacular and amazing. And when you put a magnifying glass on them, miracles. What are some of your favorite insects, most astounding insects, when you look at them close? So uh, I will focus in on bees because I think it's, it's, it's actually quite great. There's uh, the metallic sweat bee. It's, uh, it's bright green and has a striped abdomen. And it's really quite common uh, in gardens, even in Medford. Um, and if you just see it, saw it flying by, it would look like a gray blur. But up close, on a pink flower, those colors really pop. Um, you have a picture of it here? No. Yeah, it should be on the top. There it right. is, the metallic sweat bee. Yeah. So as the species genus name is Agapostamin. Um, and there's numerous examples of incredibly brilliantly colored uh, of bees. Um, and I, I'm all for advocating um, uh, to look at bees and other insects through binoculars. There's a, a long history of to study insects, you have to kill them and pin them. And to some extent, that's true. It's really hard to identify bees and get taxonomy right without having it under a microscope. But if you're just trying to appreciate and observe insects, a pair of binoculars and just some patience is a really great way. You can go and watch a patch of flowers, see how many times the bee visits the same flower over and over again. Is it able to perceive which flowers have food and which ones don't? Um, bees are actually quite perceptive of their environment because they have to be the most efficient they can at cutting, collecting resources. How did a metallic sweat bee get its name? I can only guess that it produces metallic looking sweat. Uh, actually, so it's bright green and metallic, so that's how it gets the metallic name. And it actually gets sweat because it has a preference for landing and drinking human sweat. Um, oh, really? So it actually land on your skin, and it's not looking to sting you, but it's looking to get salts and minerals from your sweat. Just like humans need uh, a diet complete with essential minerals, bees also need to get salts. But flowers are, are especially uh, poor in some so salts like sodium. You know and a so lot about bees. Uh, I like Tell me about, about the longhorn bees. The longhorn Who knew bees? that there was a longhorn bee? Yeah, so these are... Uh, a, a, Incredibly cute bees. Um, they are solitary, um, and they a lot of longhorn bees have a preference for uh, sunflowers. And so you'll see them in your garden in late summer. Um, and the males really, uh, the males find mates on flowers. And so the males will sort of hold territories and aggregate on sunflowers. Now, the males don't have a nest to go back to. And so you can actually find them sleeping on sunflowers uh, in late summer. You go out, and they'll be under the petals. Um, or they'll be clustered in a ball together. And males don't usually get a lot of attention in the, in the bee world, but some males you know, will, will sleep together or, or cluster together, and it's actually quite uh, an interesting phenomenon. Mason bees must build something. Mason bees build their nests with mud. So uh, they make their nests in linear tubes, 
and every offspring gets its own little partition, and those partitions have walls made of mud. So in addition to flowers, in addition to, to tubes, these bees also need mud to build their nests. It's fun to realize that different species of bees have completely different behaviors. Exactly. Not only behaviors, but requirements. So how do you conserve, how do you conserve bees without knowing a lot about the biology of what makes up the group of bees? There's all these different um, kind of species, and they all have vastly different um, life histories. Cuckoo bees? Cuckoo bees, yeah, these are the parasites, the ones that lay their eggs in the nests of others. So they don't build their own nest, but they do have a requirement that there needs to be a host bee nest nearby. So is there some symbiosis with their host? What, what does the host get out of the presence of the cuckoo bee? Oh, the host gets nothing. So it's not symbiotic. Oh, yeah, you said well, parasites. So, so it's straight, it's, straight up parasites. It's technically symbiotic, but it's not mutualistic. The bees don't, both bees don't benefit. Okay. Um, but the cuckoo bee gets all the benefit. And the cuckoo bee actually has a lot of uh, very intelligent ways of disguising itself so that it can't be seen, right? If a, if a cuckoo bee goes into the nest, uh, it has to wait for the host bee to leave so it can't be detected. I'm going to ask a really basic question that's going to make me look super stupid. I, no I never thing. thought, oh, there is, there. Trust me, there are dumb questions. Little bees, how are they are they born egg? Is it eggs? Yes, they're born. All eggs? They're born as eggs. Little yes. bee eggs, okay. And then they hatch into larvae, and then they metamorphose of course. into an adult bee. All right. They take any stock into the healing powers of honey. You hear about Manuka honey, is it? Uh, you know, there's some neighborhoods in the world that say, we're really old because we we eat these this kind of honey. Do you, do you buy that? Uh, personally, I, I don't buy into it, but I think that many people have uh, uh, kind of unconventional medicines that work for them, and I think that's great if it works. Okay, and any more history of honey? So there's of course the the mead right, yeah. that they drank. Human, in humans Beowulf. have been eating honey uh, for thousands of years. Um, there's a in so much so that honey bees were trying were brought over on the Mayflower, and they invented all these gyroscopes to keep the honeybee colony stable on along the ship. I didn't know that. And on the Mayflower, I don't know if it was on the Mayflower, but on some early expeditions okay. to the New World, and honeybees didn't like that. They were like, "Why are we going out over water?" So the honeybees just up and left the hive. So the ship was on its way, miles offshore, and the entire honeybee colony just flew back. They probably left right away, too. So right? It didn't They're take like, them long to figure out that something was up. No, the honeybees should not be in the middle of the water. Okay, um, and interestingly, honey was used as a weapon of war. Yeah, so thousands of years ago, I think like 65, 70 B.C., um, some uh, Persian soldiers discovered that honeybees made uh, toxic uh, honey after visiting uh, flowers of rhododendron. So some flowers of rhododendron uh, produce toxic nectar, and the honey made from that nectar was toxic. And so these soldiers would, they left it out on the path. Uh, Roman army came by, and they said, hey, free honey. So they brought it back to camp. And um, sooner or later, those Roman soldiers started hallucinating from all of the, the toxins in that honey, and they were left vulnerable. Well, there's something that most people didn't know. Now you do. You learn something every day. I made a comment during one of the breaks to Nick. I had been thinking maybe today or yesterday or both, actually, that humans, pound for pound, are the weakest animals on the planet. Every other animal's ratio of weight to strength is probably way greater than ours. Even even the, the most humble animal, like a, like a mushy little snail, lugs around his house on his back in its big heavy shell. It takes a lot of strength. I mean, could we do that? No, we could not. And you had a couple other examples of amazing animals. 
Yeah, so I mentioned monarch butterflies earlier engaging in this remarkable migration. Uh, bees, many bees can carry um, 50, 80% of their body weight in nectar and pollen back to their, their nests. Um, and I, So that's not, like flying with, like, if, if, you know, if I were 180 pounds, I would have to fly with another 180 pounds on my back Flapping my arms. Right. And then go back and then do it all over again. In like, all day long. Yeah, all day long for your entire life. But your yeah. life would only last six weeks. Uh, so, right. um, but not just insects. Um, birds, too, engage in some remarkable um, feats of strength. Uh, in particular, birds engaging on transatlantic migrations where they launch out from uh, the East Coast all the way down to Brazil. What's the a, one you gave as an example? Uh, the black pole warbler. I guess so. Um, so it's, it doubles its weight. It weighs a cup, about two nickels when it arrives on the East Coast. Before it departs three weeks later, it's doubled its weight. So it eats a lot of something. Berries, insects, um, and then it flies nonstop. So it's like you double your weight and then you run a lot of marathons. So how far does it fly, though? That's the thing. Uh, it flies thousands of miles. Across the Atlantic. Across the Atlantic Ocean to the you know canopy of Brazil. And it's a little tiny bird. Yeah, it could fit in the palm of your hand. It uh, feels like nothing. It's like four nickels. Any idea what the purpose of the long migration is? Uh, it's to take advantage of resources. So uh, the summers in the Northern Hemisphere are incredibly productive, right? There's cold for a long period of time, and then insects and plants uh, burst out for you know, three months a year in the, the Arctic. And so these uh, birds that migrate do so because they have the ability to take uh, to raise more offspring in the north than they do in the south. Um, and so sometimes it results in multiple thousand mile journeys undertaken twice a year because they can reproduce at a higher rate than they could in the tropical forests. So they, they cannot stop at all. They cannot rest. They don't land in the water or anything for a little while? No, they can't land in the water. Sometimes they'll land on boats. If there's a boat out there, sometimes, uh, you know, s sailors will note that there's incredible, uh, you know, flocks of birds following the boat or landing on the boat. And it's the most notable after a storm. So birds have to take cover somewhere during a storm. So you can imagine in the absence of a boat, most birds just die over the ocean. But in a boat, sometimes you'll have, you know, the masts and the riggings just dripping in songbirds, you know, 3,000 miles from Massachusetts. It's incredible. Now about the Tufts Pollinator Initiative. Tell us about that again, maybe some different details. Yeah, so the Tufts Pollinator Initiative is this uh, organization that I helped start um, earlier this year, basically to raise awareness about urban pollinators and protect their populations. Um, and to do that, we are not only planting gardens, but we're trying to facilitate um, others to plant gardens. So we are giving out seed packets at our outreach events, um, and we have several planting guides on our website. You, 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 you personally have gardens all over the place. I have lots of gardens. Most of the gardens are for bees, and one of the gardens is for me. Okay. Um, so you, you personally weed and hoe and plant and do it all? Yeah, just this morning I was planting garlic. Where do you find the time? Uh, I make the time. Wow. <laughs> I got to be better at managing my time. So are there community gardens everywhere? Because people tell me, hey, Bradley, you want to eat healthy food? You have to draw, d grow it yourself. I say, hey, I live in an apartment, can't do that. They say, but I guess I can. Uh, yeah. So there's lots of community gardens all around the city. Uh, Medford in the last few years has kind of built several other community gardens, one along Winthrop Street, one in South Medford where I work. But another way you can get great food is community-supported agriculture. So there's these CSA programs, and you can subscribe to them throughout the year, and they will bring a box of whatever's fresh at the farm uh, to your doorstep. And sometimes it's a lot of food, so you can split it with a neighbor, um, and it's a great way of getting 
great food of what's in season. And the best part is most of it's made by bees. Um, On your uh, Tufts Pollinator press kit here, it shows five ways to help native bees. Can you go through those? Yeah, so the best way to help native bees, uh, number one, is to plant native flowers. So plant a diversity of native flowers. Exactly. And so diversity means a lot of things. It means uh, diversity of bloom time, so things that bloom from April all the way through October. It means a diversity of heights and colors because different bees prefer different things. Um, it also means um, uh, the, second, the second strategy is to provide nesting resources. So the second thing you can do is not only provide flowers, but leave a patch of bare ground open or leave uh, 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 some muddy water so those mason bees can build their nests. The third thing you can do um, is, is not use pesticides. So this includes not using grub spray or even herbicides because they kill weeds and might have non-target effects on insects. Um, but also avoiding buying plants at big box stores. A lot of plants sold at Home Depot or Lowe's um, that sort of are advertised as pollinator friendly oftentimes are either not native or coated with um, uh, coated with pesticides. Um, third or fourth, you don't mow your lawn as frequently. Um, it just helps foster, encourage biodiversity in your yard. My mom has had the same uh, patch of those metallic sweat bees living in her yard for the last four years because she hasn't mowed that one patch. And so she had this colony that's active for only um, about uh, three months in the summer, but they're consistent. She loves seeing them every year. And last is um, uh, off, you can offer fresh water in your flowers. Bees also need to drink water. Um, and oftentimes it's sort of scarce in a- Offer fresh water, like a little bird bath kind of thing? Bird bath and make sure you put some stones in the water. Um, putting stones in the water will help the bees land and drink water, but not drown. So if you have a garden, that's a hint. Put put water near your garden, too, yeah, right? Yeah, you can put water near your garden, yeah. One thing I've noticed that I think is good, and I don't know if it's just because it happened to be in a town that's forward-thinking, but uh, there was a new building, I saw, and then new landscaping, and the landscaping was not all lawn. The landscaping include tall grasses, hmm. which I, I really like the idea of, but now I see that it's more than just fashion. It seems like there's... Thinking in terms of bees, maybe. Yeah, yeah. so um, those sort of non-lawn plantings can, can even be enhanced for bees um, by you know putting some grasses, which provide places for bumblebees to nest at the base, and then kind of interspersing those grasses with perennial flowers. And these native flowers that I'm recommending are often quite beautiful, and they require less care than an ornamental garden. They bloom um, year after year and are drought tolerant because they're native to this region. So they are being, they're adapted to the fluctuations normally experienced in New England, whereas some of these exotic plants from Europe or um, other parts of the country might not do as well. And so native plants is really gardening for the future, right? You are basically uh, building up uh, an insurance policy that your garden is going to provide flowers no matter what the climate is. You're great, Nick Dorian. Need more folks like you. Hmm. Thank you very much. Thanks, with Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.